our speaker in a Q&A session. And one of the things I've appreciated about him and, and growing up as well, I grew up, as many of you know, listening to the Bible Answer Man and listening to John Garther and others who are very articulate in explaining their convictions and giving clear answers to the questions, the many questions that are fielded. I'd always admired folks like that. I always wanted to be like them, and so he's a good role model for me. And I'd like to uh, invite him up here for another time of Q&A, and I'll get it right this time. Here you go, sir. <laughs> What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, I suspect that there are a number of questions that you may have in light of the uh, very brief treatment of the topic I gave uh, last session. And so I'd like to give um, preference to questions regarding that material first. If we run out of that and you want to go more general, uh, that's fine, fine too. But um, here we go. We got a so if you would like to, beaver in the front row. Please uh, articulate your question well, and I will bring the mic over so that we can have it on tape. So regarding the um, prayer in terms of listening for the voice of God, so to speak, yeah. can you just address what does that mean? I mean, we, you mentioned quite a bit about what it's not supposed to be in terms of what is it that these authors or the proponents of it, what is it that they do in terms of waiting with a prayer for the voice of God? Um, what the authors who are writing on this now, uh, what do they have in mind? Well, characteristically, what they suggest is that we have a time of talking to God and then we spend a time in kind of a reflective silence and we are being alert to the the thoughts that come into our mind at the time that we're being quiet. And the idea is that the thoughts that come into our mind are, being, are going to be God, uh, uh, examples of God speaking to us. They, they don't suggest usually that, um, you know, that God is going to speak into, in an audible voice uh, so that if three people were in the room together and God was speaking to the one that the other people would hear. That would be third-person public. You know, everybody could hear. That, that did happen in the New Testament. But what they have in mind usually is a kind of an inner sense that they will characterize sometimes as the still, small voice of God. So you just have this sense or nudging or these ideas come to you while you're quiet, and then you take them to be God's communication to you. Now, just a, a point of information as far as the still small voice, you can go back to 1 Kings 19, and this is where this phrase comes from. I had one uh, Christian leader that I greatly respect say to me that we have to revive the Old Testament principle of the still small voice. Well, there is no Old Testament principle of the still small voice. There's a single reference to it, and that's in 1 Kings 19. And it... And it uh, uh, most of the modern translations don't even use the phrase still small voice. I think that's a King James rendering. My New American Standard says there's a sound of gentle blowing. <laughs> and what you have there is you have an occasion where Elijah has just 
uh, defeated the prophets of Baal, Amar Carmel, slayed 700 prophets in this great uh, contest of the gods, Baal versus Yahweh. Whoever answers with fire, he's God. Yahweh wins. The prophets get destroyed, and Jezebel, the wife of King Ahaz, gets mad at the prophet. And so she waves her skirts at him, and he runs to the Negev. He heads south from the northern kingdom all the way to the Sinai in the south to the mount where Moses received the Ten Commandments. So he's depressed. He's scared. He goes up there, and God manifests himself and there was a there there was a, a couple of different um, like meteorological events like I don't know if there was noise or rushing wind or th- whatever different things, and it, it kept saying, "Well, God wasn't in that. God wasn't in that. God wasn't in that." And then there was a then there was, and now you have this verse in question: um, a still small voice, a sound of gentle blowing, whatever. And then then Elijah comes out of the cleft of the rock, and he then confronts God, and then God has a conversation with him. So in this case, there is nothing like a sense of just kind of sitting quietly and feeling these little nudges, and that's what the still small voice is. Rather, you have God having a conversation with the prophet, and the conversation is right there. You've got the details of it. It isn't like I felt like God was saying, and so I just wrote down my impressions. God gave very specific uh, directions. He was the, why was God speaking quietly to him? Because he was depressed. In any event, it was a verbal communication. It wasn't a, uh, a nudge. And then God gives very specific instructions, encouragements. Look at there. Elijah says, I alone am left, you know. And God says, look at there are still 4,000 people who have not bent their knee to Baal. I have my believing remnant. You go back. And then he gives them instructions about what to do with regards to the political situation. So there is no comparison between the actual historical account that we have in 1 Kings 19 and what the people who are writing about hearing the voice of God and listening prayer characterize that we're supposed to be doing, even though they're citing this passage. It isn't like that in the passage. So they want to, they're advancing what they think is a biblical notion, but when you go back to the passage, it, it, doesn't, it just simply doesn't say what they are characterizing it to having said. Uh, so that's, that's the way they recommend it. You sit and be quiet. Now, is there value to being quiet? Sure. But not to receive your own private revelation is a standard part of prayer. There is no concept of listening prayer in the Bible, and if, if the inspired writers didn't... Uh, feel the necessity to advance this notion, then I don't think that Christian teachers now should be advanced this notion that uh, we should be listening to get private messages from God. Um, for, for those of us who have friends who are believers yes. and they believe that God does speak directly to them through the listening right. thing, how do we, and if we were to respond back to... How do you address that? Yeah, what is the most appropriate uh, way to respond to them without... Because I guess, because in a sense you're saying you're either lying or delusional or something, so... <laughs> well, I mean, there's another alternative to lying. I don't think people are lying, and I don't think they're delusional in the standard sense of the word. I think they're simply mistaken. 
they are, I think what's happening is they have been encouraged implicitly through this teaching to take their own musings as God's statements. Okay? When you quiet yourself, you can't stop your mind. Your mind is going to keep running. Okay? There are always thoughts going through your mind. And when you are told to quiet yourself so God can speak to you, there is one teacher who says, you rebuke the devil and you rebuke your flesh, and then whatever's left is God. Where did that formula come from? A very respected teacher, by the way, uh, and a godly woman. But where did this formula come from? She says, don't ever do anything unless God tells you to do it, ministry-wise. And you don't, where does the scripture ever say, don't do anything? Okay. So in dealing with this specific um, issue, this is hard because people are deeply attached to this practice. They're attached to this practice because they identify it with godliness, and they identify, and, and, it's, and it means so much to them to have God speak to them. I, I, I'm completely sympathetic to that. I understand the, the godly desire to get a communication from God. But that is rife with difficulty. And if the scripture doesn't teach that we can get those, then we shouldn't be looking for them. God can get through anytime he wants. So when you go to address this with somebody else, it's like poking a stick in a hornet's nest. I'm just telling you right now. That's hard to do. But I think that what could be asked of them is kind of a, a Columbo number two. How'd you come to that conclusion? And, and uh, what, what, you, what you could ask them is, where in the Bible do we get the idea that everybody can get a private revelation from God? That's a fair question, I think. Now, people are going to start to come up with verses. Uh, my sheep hear my voice. The word of God is living alive. Uh, you know, and Eli Samuel, still small voice. But I promise you, these are not verses. I promise you, these are not verses they've ever looked up for themselves to see if the verse actually supports their notion. These are verses that people put in their books you know, have the peace of God, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, Colossians 3. And, you know, and we'll talk about some of these tonight. When you go back to the context, there is no way you can make the context say what these people think these verses say. It doesn't work when you go back to the text itself. So um, I, I'd encourage them, and I'd ask them about that. How, how, tell me how this works. And so you're going to ask information questions to get and justification questions from them. Will you say God told you? But what, what, what do you mean by that? How is this different from the Pope? Those awful Catholics. They have the Pope's people speaking for God. But, well, at least the Catholics limit it to the Pope. <laughs> right? In evangelicalism, everybody hears from God, supposedly. We're all little popes in that regard. So, uh, so I think it's fair to draw somebody out on that. Now, here's another, uh, another aspect of this that... Um, in, our, in my community in Southern California, it's been a bit of a stir because the wife of one of the pastors of a fairly significant church in the community has written a letter from Jesus to the congregation. This is signed Jesus, you know, and, and she fancies that the Lord has given her this message to give to the congregation. Now, this is the pastor's wife. 
So who in the congregation is going to say, wait a minute, nobody's doing that. And, and, and I asked the person who showed me the letter, and I said, has anybody asked this question of the woman who offered this alleged communication from Jesus to the congregation? Why should we believe that you are accurately speaking for Jesus? You know, when I was back in the, our room, I was reading in just 15 minutes ago, half an hour ago, I was reading in, in, in John 10. And Jesus, uh, or maybe this was last night when I was reading in John 6 because I went there too. And, and, it's, and, and Jesus is saying, um, if I testify to myself, then my testimony is not true. But I'm not the one who's testifying. The, I have another who testifies to me, John the Baptist and another who testifies of me, the Father, and another who testifies of me, Moses, and another who testifies of me, the works that I do. Even Jesus did not assume that the audience was going to believe him on his own authority. He gave a justification for why people should take him seriously. And he acknowledged that, you know, in, in, in our law, one man gives a testimony, that doesn't count. You've got to have two or three witnesses to verify. So I've got my two or three witnesses. Now, why can't we ask the same question of those who say that they speak for God? Nobody asked this, apparently, this woman, this question. But she's, she's, she's expounding with impunity. I mean, she's, she's articulating with impunity. And what I mean by that is that there seems to be a, a kind of frivolous sense that people say, well, God told me. Oh, here, I've got this letter from Jesus. In this letter, by the way, um, Jesus said, allegedly, that they were, they were excited about the prospect of Jesus' return. And Jesus said, I'm more excited about coming back than you are. Now, I don't know about you, but this, I've read a lot of Jesus, and that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. And I'm more excited about my second coming than even you are, and I know you're excited. I'm even more excited. Can't wait. You know, in any event, the question wasn't answered, why should we believe she speaks for God? In the Old Testament, when somebody said they spoke for God and they didn't get it right, they got executed. That was the law. That was how grave the claim that God is speaking through a person was in the Old Testament. Now, we don't execute people who have false prophecies now, but I think we, the, 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 the notion is still just as grave. We, we ought to think twice about saying this is what God says, because if we aren't, then we are using God's name in a vain, frivolous fashion. And there's a whole lot of people who are going to get all upset with you if you say and get angry and you say, God damn it. Oh, you lose God's name in vain. And then they're spouting, oh, well, God told me this, God told me that, and whatever, and all these frivolous things with no justification whatsoever. Isn't that an example of using God's name in vain? And it's a whole lot more dangerous, it seems to me. So in this situation, I would, I would be willing to ask your friends who say this, when you say the Lord told me, what does that mean? Do you think it was actually God? What, what, what a, what a, tell, I am interested in, uh, because I'm confused about, I'm, I'm role-playing it now. I'm confused about this notion. Um, because in the Old Testament, very few people spoke for God, and those were the prophets, and it was a huge deal. 
And, but now a lot of Christians are saying God spoke to them. So I'm trying to figure out what, what is the New Testament justification for this? Why should I believe, and maybe this is the key question, why should I take you seriously? What reasons can you give me that I should take you seriously that God actually spoke to you? So, sorry, one last question. Is, but you have to be real gentle when you do this because so, this, is, this is troublemaking. So when, because it's so serious, do you, when you have a friend who is sharing about what God is teaching them or whatever in speaking to them, do you ever not let it go? Okay, uh, now, now you've qualified, you've changed your terminology a little bit because if somebody's sharing what God is teaching them or saying to them, so uh, you, uh, there are all kinds of things that we are aware that God is helping us to understand about ourselves and we are being convicted by the Spirit and we read the Scripture and all that, and that's totally fine. I'm not, but when somebody says, the, the Lord told me and here's the things that he says, and sometimes you'll have preachers that'll talk about it. He said, yeah, and I was driving along, then, then the Lord said such and such. No, 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 Lord, that's not the way it is. That's not. And then they said, no, no, naughty, naughty, naughty. You know, and they give you these conversation things. And, you know, I think they're, well, anyway, I won't say what I think is going on, but I, I don't take that seriously at all. So um, I, in, I think in this situation for the moment, it's just better to offer some questions to maybe try to plant uh, some question or seed of doubt in people's mind about this. But the best way to approach it is from right here. That's the best place to approach it. Uh, but this is very difficult to deal with on an individual basis. And, I, and it makes me angry, frankly, to think of all of the Christian teachers who have encouraged Christians contra the Bible, misusing Bible verses. And you'll see that tonight and tomorrow morning in order to advance this view. Incidentally, make a note of this article I wrote. It's in Solid Ground on the website. It was one of those things we mailed out. Does God whisper? Does God whisper? I had three... Uh, installments of that, part one, part two, and part three. And I don't know, this is ancient words, this book here. I don't know if there might be a version of that in there or not, but um, uh, you can download that for free right now. I haven't worked that into a larger book, so um, it's available on our website for free, and I go through a lot of these details. So it's a very tough thing to address individuals. Yes, sir? Um, if we cannot expect to receive personal revelation from God, then can we expect to have a personal relationship with Jesus? And if so, how? Okay, well, it's a great question. Well, let me put it to this, this way. Do you think, in some sense, that the New Testament teaches a relationship with God? Yes. Okay. Um, do you think, and maybe you're not sure about this, but do you think that the New Testament teaches that we can get private revelations from God? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Okay, well, fair enough. Uh, maybe after tonight, you know, when we go through some of the passages, it'll feel differently. If it turns out that a person cannot demonstrate from the New Testament text, and it's easy to do, just find the verse that teaches this. That's all they have to do. Find the passage that teaches this notion. That's all you have to do. Um, if the New Testament doesn't have that, those passages, then the New Testament does not teach that Christians need to have private revelation, hear the voice of God. But the New Testament does indicate that there is a relationship with God that's available. Therefore, according to New Testament teaching, you can have a relationship with God without getting private words from Him. And in fact, this notion of getting private revelations from God is a, is a historically new phenomenon, principally 20th century. 
Before that, people didn't expect that everybody gets a private word. They went back to the word that was given. Okay, and that's right here. Now, as to the idea that uh, relationship in, entails a two-way communication, uh, let me back up for a moment because your question was about relationship. Dallas Willard, um, like I said, godly man. I knew Dallas. I wasn't close to him, but I knew him. Um, I'm very close to his, uh, J.P. Moreland, who Dallas was J.P.'s mentor, you know, and J.P. holds the same views in this that Dallas does. Um, but they reason this way. We're in relationship with God. Relationship entails communication. Look at your human relationships. Ask yourself, what are characteristic of human relationships? And then apply that to the relationship with God, because there's a parallel there. Okay? Now, I think this is mistaken. Because, first of all, the, the, the Scripture doesn't say, in so many words, that we're in relationship with God. There is an intimation of a kind of relationship. But if you want to know what kind of relationship we have with God, you don't look around at human relationships and see what those are like and then apply them to God. What you do is you go back to God's description of the relationship and see what that's like. And in the cases where God describes our relationship that in a way that's similar to human relationships, we can trade on that as a parallel. But they, they are not parallel in, completely. Only in modest ways are they parallel. Because God is not a human being. And also God is not personally present. And so there are a lot of differences. And, there, and, and God is God and we're human. So there's a lot of differences. And therefore, relationship with God is going to be different. This is why when you're in relationship with people, you're there all the time. But for a lot of very godly Christians, God disappears for a long period of time with regards to their subjective awareness of Him. It's called the hiddenness of God, and it happens in everybody's life. This is a variation in this. So, so my, my encouragement is to find out what does the text teach about the nature of relationship? I think it's fair to say that there's a two-way communication between us and God. What is the nature of that two-way communication? How do we communicate with God? We talk to Him. How does God communicate to us? In His Word. Is this a communication from God to us? All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. And what ends up happening in a circumstance like this is people... And I've been talking about this since 1982. So I have been on this topic for a long time and given lots of talks and fielded a lot of objections on, on audiences and also on the air. And what ends up happening is people treat the Bible implicitly like the booby prize. Well, where's communication with God then? I said, well, what about this? And their, their thinking is, we, can't, we don't have a rich relationship with God unless we're having subjective revelations from Him. The Holy Spirit's kind of sitting on our shoulder talking to us. And I said, what about the Word? And I'll tell you, one lady who, who called and objected on this point, she said, well, then, according to you, all I've got left is the book. <laughs> that is exactly what she said. It's like, I get the booby prize. That's what you're saying? Oh, the book! Like this. But this is the book that has been protected and defended down through the ages, ancient words ever true. And, and our, 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 the body of Christ has protected this and shed blood and given their individuals, given their lives 
for the transference of this and keeping it safe and delivering it to us. This is God's word to us. Now, God can talk to us anytime he wants. My view is God can do whatever he wants, and he breaks through at different times, and he will communicate. But uh, I cannot teach whatever I want. I've got to teach what the Bible teaches. And when people teach as Christian practice something the Bible doesn't teach that turns out to be dangerous, then I have to say they're wrong. And I've got to go back to the text as my defense. So there is a rich relationship with God, and Christians have experienced them for 1,900 years without the expectation of getting private revelation. And that's been experienced through the subjective experience of the Holy Spirit in a person's life and the living word that is God's communication to us about himself and how we ought to live. Yes, Keith. Where does uh, speaking in tongues come in this? Well, uh, speaking in tongues has no bearing at all on this basic concept that I'm talking about here. Um, There is a question of whether or not Tongues is a legitimate gift today. Uh, That's, I think, a separate theological discussion. I will make an observation, though, about Paul's comments about tongues, because certainly tongues were legitimate in the first century, and I don't think anybody disputes that. And there's a proper use of them. Paul talks in Corinthians about the abuse of of the gift. It's a revelatory gift, and in functioning in the church at that time, there needed to be a, um, a translator uh, someone with the gift of, of uh, interpretation that could tell what it mean, it meant, or else you, he said you'd just be speaking in the air. And this is in 1 Corinthians 14, and there's an important message that's there, I mean a principle. What Paul says is he says, take, for example, the flute or the harp. If, uh, if a person is playing the flute or the harp and there is no distinction of the tones, how will it be known what is being played? Okay, you don't, it's just noise, right? You know what tune it is. Uh, and the bugle, if somebody produces an indistinct sound with the bugle, how will people gather themselves to battle? So the bugle was the comms of the ancient world, and to call people to charge, there was a certain bugle sound. And this, they had this in the Civil War, for example. And uh, different units had different sounds, though. And so you had to make sure you got, you knew the difference between the bugle for advance and the bugle for retreat. <laughs> Right? It's pretty important. And that's kind of the point that Paul is making. If there is a communication, it has to be clear or it doesn't fulfill its intended purpose. Now, it's right there in 1 Corinthians 14. And then he says, and then he makes application of these metaphors to the circumstance of speaking in tongues without an interpreter. And he says, uh, in the same way, unless we speak with the mouth words that are clear, how will it be known what is being said? Now, of course, we can get behind this when you talk about tongues with interpretation. I mean, this is very, very clear. But this exact same principle applies to this question of God speaking to us because he is speaking of the nature of revelation. And he's saying, what good is so-called revelation that can't be understood? That would be tongues without interpretation. What good is an indistinct sound? Well, apparently there are a whole bunch of people that believe that God is in the habit of communicating in an indistinct way through nudges and pushes and little hints or that kind of thing. Well, this is a complete violation of what Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 14 on Revelation. So that we can, as far as tongues proper, it's a totally separate issue. But the principle that Paul develops regarding tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 does apply to this question, I think. Hi. Um, Hi there. 
So I have a question, and it might be similar to Wes's question, but okay. how do you talk to other Christians about controversial issues like homosexuality or like interpreting the Bible like, yeah. in different ways? And well, how do you talk with other Christians about controversial, controversial issues? And I guess the simple way to do it, the simple answer is you have to reason with them. You have to reason with them. That, that is, you have to express a point of view and then give a rationale. So if I am, I am talking to a Christian regarding homosexuality, now we're, we're qualifying this. This is a Christian. This is a person who believes in God and the Bible and Jesus and the whole thing. He's one of us, or at least says he's one of us. Well, where do we take our cue? Here, I, I mean, I'd role play it kind of like this. I'd say to the person, say Kristen, right? If you were the person, I'd say, Kristen, where do we know what's right or wrong from God's perspective? How do we learn this? What would you say? For the scripture, yeah, we're God's word. God has revealed himself so that we, okay, well, let's, on the homosexuality issue, do you think God has anything to say about that issue? Yes. Yes, he does. So um, there are a couple of places, places maybe uh, Genesis uh, 19 there, I think it's the Sodom and Gomorrah, and maybe Leviticus uh, 20 or, or 17, and, and there's the law, there's Romans chapter 1. I mean, there's passages. Okay, well, I would say let's go back and see what these passages have to say. Is God for or against homosexuality? What does it seem the passage says? Well, th there has never been any confusion on this for virtually 2,000 years. In the case of the New Testament, a lot longer for the Old Testament, God sees the, it, the uh, homosexuality as an abandonment of his provision. In Leviticus, if a man lays with a man the way he's supposed to lay with a woman, that's an abomination. In Romans chapter 1, it says that men abandoned the natural provision for them. They, uh, actually, it says they abandoned the, the, uh, yeah, the natural, I, have to, I don't have my New American Standard here, but uh, the, the, the provision that God made for them in a woman, and they burned in, their, in lust towards each other. So you can go back to the text and say, this is, God doesn't like this because it's an abandonment of what he has given, what he has ordained for this. So there's your answer, I mean, on that particular issue. And in the case of any controversial hermeneutical question, like how you interpret the Bible, you've got to go back to the text and look at it. And one of the keys to figuring this out, I already gave it to you, is that's never read a Bible verse, is you're follow, you want to try to follow the, the, the line of thought. You're not just plucking a verse out and trying to figure out what it says. You're, what is the flow of thought that this one line is encased in, and then it'll help you to understand what the verse means. So simply put, you resolve controversial issues with an attitude of grace and by reasoning with them, in many cases, reasoning from the scriptures. Okay? Good question. Sir. Hi. Um, so I guess I have one comment and one question, and please feel free to comment on the comment. Okay. I guess, so the comment is that you know, uh, as I think about uh, Christianity and Christian faith, that, uh, you know, there is the sense that if you're not hearing from the Lord, if you're not able to hear his voice, that the implications are that you're not as a mature Christian. Well, uh, maybe it's worse than that. Henry Blackaby implies that if you're not hearing the voice of God, you're not a Christian because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Right. It's an indicative. If you're his sheep, you will hear. And he has his own understanding of what that phrase means. And so it's pretty hard for Christians that are not hearing. Then they wonder, what's up? What's wrong with me? Right. And, and it kind of sets, I think, Christians and even you know, new Christians and maybe Christians who are growing to seek growth in those ways, which the implications are very severe. 
Um, that's kind of kind of my comment. Um, yeah. And I think in the Bible, at least what I wrestled with is too is like, well, there's all these people that the Bible doesn't name who are believers, entire people of Israel. But they're believers, they're Christians, they're following God, but they're never named. And so you know, ever know anything about them in some ways. As a Christian, sometimes I feel like I'm relegated to, well, is it a bad thing that I'm one of those people, that yeah. I'm not Moses or I'm not David or I'm not these, you know, men of God that the Bible talks about. And I think sometimes because we preach that, mm-hmm. we also imply that that's who, you know, as a Christian you yeah. ought to be. Okay. So the, the, th- there's the, a tough tension. You can be a, a deeply godly person and not have a role in the local religious community like Moses did. Moses was absolutely unique. And, and he is held by that, that uh, to be unique by the Jews throughout the 1,500 years that followed until the time of Christ. He was absolutely unique. <clears throat> and Henry Blackaby says, everything that happened to Moses can happen to you. Now, when, when uh, Moses, uh, uh, when Miriam and uh, his brother um, Aaron made the same move and said, well, you're not special, well, God struck them. Moses was special. And Moses says there'll be a time in the future when another one like me will be raised up a prophet. And Jesus is that prophet. So there's Moses and there's Jesus. I mean, and there is nobody like them in between. There are other great men and women of God that nobody ever heard of, mass, massive numbers. There are many that then stood up because of their role in the, in the community as someone whose name you rec- recognize. The people who received direct private revelation were few and far between in the biblical record. And in fact, in the case of uh, the book of Acts, where people say this, this is popping up all the time, there's actually only 14 occasions from the, pen, from the time of Pentecost to the end of the book, which covers about 30 years, only 14 occasions where the Holy Spirit intervened with a direct command. And uh, I will talk about that later tonight and tomorrow, but uh, they all followed a very specific pattern, and they were grouped together. So it turns out, even in the book of Acts, this is rare, and most of the Christians were kind of ordinary folk. This doesn't mean that they were second-class citizens, because they were still, as, as gardeners, you know, doing their particular role as God has placed them in the body, each having their own gift as the Holy Spirit has distributed. Um, but I think you're right about this, that this teaching kind of gives one the feeling, and maybe some of you have felt it, that you're thinking, well, God never talked to me. I'm not feeling these nudges and prompts. What's wrong with me? And this is the implicit impact of this. A lot of people think they're second-class citizens because of this. And the, some teachers explicitly say, like Henry Blackaby, your salvation itself might be in question. Now, he completely misconstrues um, John 10, completely. And that's easy to demonstrate, and I'll talk about it, I think, I don't know if I'll have time in this other thing, but if, I just read John 10 today. I just read the whole thing. And uh, my sheep hear my voice. And you can go back and read that chapter. And the sheep that hear Jesus' voice are not believers. In that passage... Plus, Jesus is speaking a figure of speech. Verse 6 states it explicitly. Those Jews he was talking to heard his voice. They actually heard his voice. But something else wasn't happening. That the phrase, my sheep hear my voice, is a figure to describe. So the question is, what is the, 
what is the reality that's being described there by Jesus that he's using the phrase, my sheep hear my voice, as a figure of? Well, it's something that applies to non-believers. And the concept of hearing the voice of God or of Jesus doesn't start in John 10, it starts in John 5. And there's a reference in John 5, 3 or 4, I mean, between John 5 and John 10, there are like seven or eight references to hearing the voice of God, and they all mean exactly the same thing. And they have nothing to do with the way Blackaby cashes that passage out. So you're going to be in suspense about, well, what does he mean? Well, you can read it yourself. It's not that hard. Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to ask a question that's more related to the previous topic. I won't be here for this evening, so I just okay. want a chance well, to shame ask on a question. You. Well, I'm not going to answer your question then. Oh, no, you're going to suffer. It's to help other people. But, All right. Um, so the question is, uh, a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the, the talk today has been, and yesterday has been about using reasoning to talk to people. Sure. And I think the way I think of, the way I interact with people is through reasoning as well. But I understand, like in my own experiences, especially talking to my parents, for example, uh, they're, they're not logical people. They don't yeah. use reasoning. There's a lot of kids that say that about their folks. And, you know, I don't mean it in a derogatory way, I, but I, I do believe I, that if you think about things like personality differences, Meyer-Briggs, and so forth, there is a type of person that doesn't like to think in a reasoning way. They're experiential. They're, they're, they, and they're pragmatic. And the way they, in their own mind, it, it makes sense to them how they're thinking right. about it. So someone who has a reasoning perspective can't relate to them, and they can't yeah. relate to me. Yeah. And it makes that conversation very difficult. The approach I've seen you present assumes that reasoning is a common factor that we have to come to uh, yes, with. Right. But they won't, they, uh, yeah, they let me respond to it. It's a very good question. And um, actually, when people reject the truth, uh, there are at least four different kinds of reasons. Sometimes they're rational reasons. Uh, sometimes they're emotional reasons. Sometimes they're prejudicial. That is, they've already made up their mind, and they... They don't want to hear, you know, don't confuse me with the facts kind of thing. And sometimes there's just bullheadedness. And actually, bullheadedness is the biggest problem. It's fallenness of man. So how does one deal with that? Um, if they're not rejecting for, in a sense, rational reasons, but for maybe emotional reasons. Well, I think look, no way of communicating is a silver bullet. It's going to get through to every person, okay? But... Even when you address somebody on, on their emotional concerns or their prejudicial concerns, there is a sense in which you are always reasoning with them. That is, you are taking exception with their view and you're giving them a rationale of some sort why they, shouldn't, why they should consider an alternative. Because what else is there in conversation with anybody about anything? If, if, if you're not going to reason with them in some fashion, and maybe it's not a rigid Aristotelian kind of argument like the uh, Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God, you're not doing a Thomas Aquinas number, but you're just kind of talking with people, it still broadly follows the same format. You're trying to figure out what are their concerns or their convictions and then why they, that's their feeling. And so somebody said, look, this is the way I was raised. I believe this way because I was raised this way. I'll probably never change. And, and, uh, and I might, so I'm going to role play. So I might say, so do you think that the things that people believe about religious issues are really important? Yeah, they are really important. Well, then, do you, do you think then that just believing a really important thing just because you've been raised that way is the right way to approach that question? 
Now, those are my Columbo questions, right? But know how I'm kind of getting to the meat of the matter. I'm curious what they have to say. If you think this is, is, is it possible that maybe the way you've been raised is, is not accurate and this is going to end up hurting you down the line? Is that possible? I mean, if it's possible, then it might be probable depending on the issue. So how would you know? So these are the, these are the I'm reasoning with them after a certain fashion, but what am I, I'm reasoning now with the prejudicial perspective. I'm kind of addressing that. Now, some people are going to say, you know, I don't really care. It works for me. I'm happy. Get out of my face. Well, I walk away. I walk away. I'm not going to talk to people who don't want to talk with me about it. And sometimes you're in family circumstances, and I talked to some people earlier today about that. That's hard because you want your family to trust the Lord, and, uh, and may at this point they're still resistant. Well, don't bruise the fruit. Do what you can, and if they put up their resistance, well, then walk away for the moment and see if the Lord may not open that door. In my family, we had no Christians until my brother became a Christian. He was the middle brother of five kids, and through him, virtually everybody in the family became Christian, except for my parents. Uh, all the kids became Christian through him. Then my dad became Christian really through another route, but he became a Christian when he was 70 years old, and he died when he was 71. Basically, deathbed conversion. He had cancer, and it was a real conversion. And he was a crusty old guy, you know. And we thought, never, ever. So you, you never know what God is going to do. Uh, and, and sometimes you just wait for the right opportunity. But I, I don't know what else there is to say to people. Sometimes you can kind of bypass. The only exception would be bypass the, the kind of reasoning process by going directly to the existential situation of a person. And so, in other words, right where they're at and what they're, you know they're experiencing. So when I spoke at Berkeley, I addressed the, the audience. I spoke on relativism. And it was a huge audience at Berkeley. And um, they had overflow rooms and everything. It was a big thing. And, you know, Berkeley's a very liberal kind of place. And so I spoke on relativism. And then I began to address the audience. And I said, there's something that I know about everybody in this audience uh, that you know about yourself, but you don't know that other people know. That is, you all have a bad self-image. How do I know that? Because everybody does. And, and, and I'll tell you real quickly, I, I stretched it out a little bit, but I was identifying our sense of our own awareness of, of brokenness. We know that there's something wrong with us. And uh, that something wrong is moral, so we're bad in some ways. And we feel badly about it. That's the bad self-image. But it also expresses itself in another feeling, and the feeling is guilt. We feel guilty. And the audience acknowledged that for me because I asked the questions. And then I asked, why do you feel guilty? I said, I'll tell you, maybe you feel guilty because you are guilty. Is that in the running? Now, I know that I am registering with every, virtually every single person in that audience because the experience of true moral guilt is a universal human condition unless you're a sociopath, unless you're broken really badly, all right? And so I'm speaking directly to their existential awareness. And what I said then, I said the answer to guilt is not denial. That's relativism, which I had just spoken on. The answer to guilt is forgiveness. And this, I said, is where Jesus comes in. So that was the first time in the whole talk I had mentioned Jesus. I had not talked theology at all, but I had been doing pre-evangelism up to that point, and now I'm at a point where I can just speak directly to their felt emotional need. That's what I mean, their existential state. And say, Jesus gives forgiveness. And that's something that you desperately need and want.
and it's there for you. So now there, I wasn't making a case for Jesus. I was just acknowledging their hunger, and I was offering them food. And that's the only other way I can think to get around this, this issue. All right? Thank you very much. All right. Let's give him a <laughs> round of appreciation. Thanks.